Well, listeners, there goes another edition of Radio Blackout on this steamy art fair Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for listening. It's a pleasure to do this show for you, as always. Up next, we have Living Writers pre-recorded show from December 8th, 2010 with Michael Byers. After which, we'll have Free Speech Radio News, followed by the Daily Exercise Show, and your ass will follow, Beat the Bezoar, and the local music show. So lots of great music in store for you this Wednesday evening. So keep it locked to the left side of your dial, the one, the only, 88.3 WCN. FM Ann Arbor. This is DJ Blackout saying goodbye. Good afternoon. You have Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Michael Byers is here. His book, Percival's Planet. Hi, T. We should always have that music coming in because it's like such. <laughs> I have it playing where wherever I go. I have to call ahead, so when I walk into the grocery store, everybody knows I'm there. <laughs> it's true, and they're sort of, sort of frightened, I sort of excited. The, <laughs> I wear the hood usually. Oh, yeah. oh. I do the breathing. Only at the checkout counter or just when you're perusing like the the frozen corn and frozen peas. If they're not taking my check, I break out the breathing. (laughs) Well, this is, and this is a different, we've started with a different motif because listeners, you're a friend of the show. So listeners may recall, um, your stint on Living Writers a while ago. It's great when, to be back with T, T, whose name is among the shorter names of people I know, except for my friend. Blank does, doesn't have a first name, <laughs> so you can't pronounce it. It's just nothing. Is he an illusion? <clears throat> you could say that, yes, and that I just made him up to be funny. Yeah. Hi, T. It's great to be back. It's great to have you here, Michael. And the last song was um, Son of a Preacher. Preachers. Oh, boy, I forgot about that. Wait, wait, wait. Son of a Preacher Son Man. Son of a Preacher Man. And that was, we had that little ditty mm-hmm. as our opening. Mm-hmm. Um I remember. To remind you of of your other, I mean, you teach here at the, at the University of Michigan, and you're also a man about town with the karaoke. Oh, indeed. Oh, you're right. Now you're bringing up the karaoke. All right. We can talk about that if you need to. No, I don't, if you need to, you no, know, we don't need, bring that up. People can listen to that, that other show. I sang from... karaoke <laughs> to Jeffrey Eugenides. It's my claim to fame, I think. I think that's probably my first and foremost at this point claim to fame actually not with because he chickened out as as faithful listeners will remember he said he was going to sing karaoke so i went first lesson never go first especially but, with the famous guy but then <laughs> there's there's a reason that he's got his that's uh, right his fame and exactly. his fortune and yeah. it's not the karaoke karaoke it's keeps the... holding me back is i think the problem right yeah susan's like clutching her forehead mm. right now <laughs> no more <laughs> No more, please. Yeah. But, well, so we went with a, a song that has gravity and great meaning because um, growing up, 
with the stormtroopers oh in your on your bedroom walls or on so, <laughs> pajamas. Had, what? <laughs> so Star Wars comes out in 1977. I get to see it in the theater when I'm of uh, of an age to do so. Eight years old, uh, and um, yeah, uh, we had. Um, I was lucky enough to have the story of Star Wars, which is the kind of transcription. Uh, not a transcription. It's like a record. It's an hour-long LP. We may have it back here in the stack somewhere, which is highlights of the movie. And also there's a narrator in there, so he'll get you from plot point to plot point. So my brother and I listen to this maybe literally a thousand times a year and memorized it, so completely memorized it, except for the point where they're, um, the Han and uh, everybody, they're landing on the Death Star uh, in order to rescue the princess. They've been pulled aboard by the tractor beam, and there's a scratch in the record there. So I don't know what they're saying. So I, I, have, I, 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 uh, I have to kind of fake it at that point in the, in the movie. But, um, and I don't know the whole thing because it's only highlights, but there are scenes that I know by heart. And Vader is uh, obviously, he's a hero to me. Obviously. Yeah. Your fashion choices alone. <laughs> really? The boots. That's right. So when you're watching the film, when these highlights come up, you can hardly, you can't, you can hardly stop yourself. Well, there are times just driving around town where it just, there's some apropos reason to begin quoting the Star Wars. And I'm sure many people are afflicted in this way. Right. Um, they just don't admit it. They're not brave enough, <laughs> frankly. So this is the day where you, you say in public... This is it. That's okay. Before we go further, I'm going to read your short bio in the back of Percival's Planet because right. this is this is your latest novel, out this year with Henry Holt. There it is, and it's it's a it's a hefty, a hefty hunk of literature. Here we go. Michael Byers is the author of The Coast of Good Intentions, a book of stories, and Long for This World, a novel. Both were New York Times notable books. He's been a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award and won the Sue Kaufman Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. And also the Whiting. Right? I'm waiting. That's okay. correct. A, a Seattle native. He now teaches at the University of Michigan. Although I am on leave this year. So that's why so, you're not haunting the, the right. halls of angel I'm at the not moment. not haunting the halls of angel. I'm and, not taking people out to sing. <laughs> <laughs> Hence, Jeffrey Eugenides didn't come for a visit this year. No. He's not coming. But maybe you'll come out of the 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 quietness, the 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 seclusion for when um, um when oh my goodness, Jonathan Lethem comes, for example. Oh, because he's on deck for the fall. I he think he's going to be here for a week, mm -hmm. maybe. So there's plenty of opportunities. That should be fun. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just have to plant the seed now. So, what are you doing with this oh, this break? I'm uh, I'm like riding what? the chair. You know, I'm. Uh, are you tip tapping on the yeah. the keys? Yeah. Typewriter, computer. Computer. Yes. Mm -hmm. What's your trusty computer? What what is it? Because you know how like you'd know writers by their maybe their model of typewriter. Mm. <clears throat> no, for me it's the I had a monitor problem, so <clears throat> I um I have I have fairly lousy vision. Um, so I can't see very well, uh, and uh, so I need a big monitor. Uh, so I have I have now a giant. I think it's a twenty-three, twenty-six inch monitor on my 
on my desk. And it's great because you can see two pages at once. And at least it gives you the sense that there's more to what you're working on than the, than the sentence in front of you, which is kind of nice. I mean, you feel sort of the wind at your back that way. Um, in the way, I suppose, that a pile of paper next to the typewriter does as well. I used to write on a typewriter, but that's because I'm old and we didn't have computers. But was was that when you were living in the fallout shelter as well? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, in fact. And before. Yes, my grandfather. You know, <clears throat> well, here's the official, <laughs> the sort of the official story is that my grandfather was so afraid of nuclear war that he, uh, in the early 60s, well, I mean, it was right before and during the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, built himself a little shack house on the Washington coast, Washington state coast, um, because it was relatively a good place to be uh, during the uh, nuclear holocaust to come. I've since been told uh, that that's a bogus story by my uncle, his son, uh, and that that is a story that had been made up by my mother in order to, you know, kind of broadcast a certain dis satisfaction with her father. However, oh, I thought it was to like romanticize it no. or the forethought well, no, or that's, the <laughs> That's what I do. So I I take that which is meant in bitterness and I turn it into beauty. That's what I do. But <clears throat> just across the board. Yeah, absolutely. But day the, after day. Uh, day after day, that's why I sit there so long. Um and it uh, uh but that's not true. Uh, uh, and it's it's one of those things where... When did you find out the truth? Yeah, just like this what... summer. Uh, just this summer, in fact. Uh, I had written a, a thing about it, actually, um, for a an online publication of some kind. And uh, my uncle, I sent it to my uncle, and he he wrote back and said, that's great, however, not true. And, um, you know, I remember as a younger person, um, as one does as a writer, coming into... Um, one's own in such a way that you, you kind of take possession of your family stories, right? Those stories of of your, especially your extended family, you don't know well enough to know all the kind of interfering background. Um, they become subjects, of course. They become interesting and, and alluring because you don't know a lot. And in the way that good fiction or poetry or, or music um, that leaves emptinesses in itself for the experiencer to experience and to fill in um, those sorts of uh, those sorts of forms are of course more interesting than the ones that tell you everything so these stories of, of my family uh, 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 these people who were incompletely known to me were always much more interesting um, and uh, and so I, I remember in fact asking or or stopping people from telling me as much as they wanted to because of course, everybody, what the, what do you want to do with your family stories? You want to dish the dirt. You want to gossip. You want to tell the whole thing, and uh, I I would get my fill very quickly. Like I would I would have enough to go on and to sort of go with. And I okay, I'll just I'll just stop. I would I would literally say stop. I don't want to hear anymore. I can't use it then because I was mercenary and. Uh, and your imagination maybe had already been stoked a bit, so it was so you were like it's the wheels are turning. Right, there's something up there, and and. Um, and you're already making it yours yeah. in that moment. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and so now that I've used him, I think, sufficiently, or at least imagined using him sufficiently as a character, I don't mind knowing a little more about him. And, of course, in fact, as I get a little older, 
the fuller stories are always more interesting than the ones that I can think up. I mean, it's like over and over again the case that the more I know about person X, the more interesting they are and the more uh, fruitful or, um, oh, you know, the more kind of uh, uh, interesting they become as a, as a subject for me. The, the 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 trick then I suppose becomes writing something that you know well, and that's something I'm I'm trying to learn how to do still, is writing into a subject that's well known to me. The you know, the energy, the interest, uh, for me, uh, and I think for almost everybody comes when you don't quite know what's going to happen, and you don't know who's coming on the page yet, and you don't know what they're going to say, and so on, and that's that's always very attractive, um, and keeps you kind of going uh, into the next paragraph. Uh, and so when you know a little more about people, the, your work is, is, I think, substantially different than it is when you're performing a more completely imaginative exercise. Yeah, because in a way you're, you're, I can almost imagine that you're being pushed forward into the paragraph and, um, and then you're, you're excavating mm-hmm. more than the, I don't know, that other, which is good. I mean, it's not to be nothing like the the imaginative painting around mm-hmm. things and expanding. That's that's it, too. So I, that's I, all part of it. And, but. This, and this latest book started because I was, in fact, writing about this guy, this grandfather of mine. I yes. began a long time ago, 10-plus years ago, in fact, in fact, on a typewriter because I was feeling desperate and helpless. And there is something about the machine the the motion of the typewriter. Boy, I wish I thought that. No, I no. don't. No, no, <laughs> it wasn't your magic. I used talisman. to think that. No, <laughs> I used to think that. Now it just it slows me down. I just you know I'm afraid of becoming a little less interesting <laughs> as the years go by in that way. No, but, no. But the um, but Alan Alan Barber. So Alan Barber, who is one of the protagonists of this novel, who is who is in this novel, an astronomer who works at Lowell Observatory at the time when. Planet X is being hunted for the thing that would eventually be called Pluto, which and, is... And this is Arizona. It's in Arizona at Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff uh, in the late 1920s. But I began this book, in fact, a long time ago, by writing about my grandfather as a young man meeting and marrying his wife, my grandmother. And I was interested in their relationship because she... Um, they were both kind of glamorous, um, interesting looking, had these peculiar to me backgrounds. I didn't know too much about them. I knew enough, but not too much to kind of get in my way. He was a mountain climber, and she was very pretty, and all these things. And, and <laughs> she, she was the youngest state representative in the state of Washington. You know, she was 24 and serving the state house and stuff like that. So she was kind of cool, and I was very interested in these people. Um, I was not up to writing about them 10 years ago. I just couldn't quite figure out how to do that write about them as they were. Um, and I failed. I wrote about 200 pages of of a novel featuring them, uh, mostly featuring him as a mountain climber and a law student. And um, lost my way, lost my, lost my kind of attachment to the characters, couldn't get the two of them together in some way. It just didn't work narratively. I didn't know what I was doing. And I actually put it all away, and I wrote another novel that we have spoken of before, Long for This World, and that's all done. And that was, I started and finished that novel after having started the material for this newer one. And that was somewhat based on your father, who is a a geneticist. Mm -hmm. And that, again, that was in the other show. So we Mm -hmm. won't... (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. but, but this is so this material lived, but you you just had it in a drawer. Yeah, I had it in a drawer. I you know I I had a, an attachment to it. We I I think you know this feeling. I I suppose there's you get attached to the material that you fail at, and you put it away, and it grows. It gets more luminous in the drawer for me anyway. Like it gets more interesting and attractive, and it's full of possibilities because you were younger and smarter then. Remember that? <laughs> I do. Like, you, you could do more. It felt more fluid. You were kind of more attached to the mystery or something. was You know, you were better. You can't, you're not like this wizened old guy here. So you can't be that jaded yet. You're, you can still be attached to I the mystery, Michael Byers. I can be jaded if I want to be. <laughs> I'm jaded. I can be jaded. That's the title of your, ne- your, your next solo album. <laughs> my memoir. I can be jaded. Uh, but there it is. It's sitting in the drawer, and it's it's kind of giving off those rays that it gives that that drawer stuff gives off. Mm. Um, Don't give up. Yeah. Or there's something here that you haven't found, right? There's something still here. There was always something here. That's yeah. why you. Yeah. Yeah. So I went back to it. I took it out of the drawer and said, "This is going to be the next book." But by the time I had gotten back to it, um, it uh, it need it it was. It had rotted in the drawer somehow. You know how that happens? Where you go back to something and it's just, it's it's full of holes and it's spongy and it's stupid. And somebody else wrote it. Who was that? And then there are those flashes where you think, oh, actually, that's pretty good right there. Um, so there was enough time to kind of still hook onto it. And this, this guy, this figure, my grandfather, who, um, like, I suppose, like for anybody, your sort of ancestors or your family predecessors, the people who have come before you, have, I think, a natural and a, and a well, they hold a natural interest, but, but also they're part of your, if we're to sort of make a theory about it or something, they're part of your own, they're part of yourself. They're part of the story of yourself and how you got here. So any expo- exploration of the past is really just um, narcissism. self-gazing. <laughs> right. Of course. It just, it's, it's got a little... More noble feel to it, I suppose, but really it's just about the self. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back to talk more about Michael Byers <laughs> and his self. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, today, Michael Byers, his latest novel, Percival's Planet. We'll be back. <laughs>
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Michael Byers is here. Percival's Planet, his latest novel. Here for Toto, by the way. <laughs> and these are his picks. These are his musical choices all along. Thanks, thanks to Toto for the rains in Africa. Yeah, you don't mean that, and I could tell. <laughs> but uh, I you... chose them with with a with an honest heart, T. <laughs> What does this song mean to you, Michael Byers? This well, is your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is. This is from the same era. This is actually this is a paper route song, is what this is. I think. Right? Night nineteen eighty two. We talking in there somewhere? Anyway. So I've got this on the walk, man. On the tape, cassette tape. Well, actually no, it's on yeah, no, it's on the Walkman because I had Toto. I had this album. And uh and this is I just this was I it's such a stupid song. It's such a stupid song, and it's just, it's insulting, and it's, I don't know, bigoted in some way, right? It's the mystery of Africa. I mean, it's just, oh, right. it's right. ridiculous, but I dig it. The rain's down in Africa. I'm just like, I never what, th- the, what, are, what is he singing about? I went online. I think I thought I, it was about going, taking a plane to Africa when I was a kid, I, I think, think so. Oh, well, who knows what it's about? Okay. It probably is. There's a... I think he, I, I read this, Wikipedia helped help me out here i think whoever this guy whoever toto is mr toto was flying down and i mean no he wasn't flying he saw something on tv and it moved some news story from the african continent and it moved him and so he wrote this dumb song and you you sang it aloud on your paper route over and over and over again yeah them and men at work also oh that was what i i was thinking men at work also and which which of that album did you love? Uh, what's the one with the Vegemite sandwich? Yes. Um, yes. We come from the land down under. Yeah, beautiful yeah. song. Also. <laughs> that, that's another good. Beautiful. He goes he goes all over the world, and what do people give him? Vegemite sandwiches. It's so moving. <laughs> I think there's some mystery words in that one too that I'm not quite sure. I know there's some you thunder, think... but um, I don't know. Right. I don't. Yes. You have to look up the lyrics, which I've done, and then you learn them. <laughs> And then you sing them in the car. I do. Well, I For do. example. Mm-hmm. And you you teach Hazel and John the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> My poor children. Think of them. Think of the horrors they've witnessed. Um, okay. So it's always now we have to now turn our t- attention book. towards mm-hmm. the book. All right. Would so, you, so, you, my, yeah. my gra- so I was writing about my grandfather. <laughs> yes. And... Um, and uh, and he had been a, a loss. Uh, he'd been in law school, and I had been. I had I had written up to the point where he was in law school. He was going to Harvard, which is where he went in the late 1920s. But it was so boring. It was so boring to write about law school, and I couldn't figure out a way not to do that. I was too dumb to figure out how not to do that. So I put it away, wrote another book, came back to this one, and during somewhere in the interim, I had heard or during my research of the era, had picked up the fact that in the late 1920s at Harvard, one of the things they were doing in conjunction with Lowell Observatory in Arizona was looking for Planet X Pluto. Thereupon, I said, well, boy, he's a boring lawyer. Let's make him an astronomer. Why not? Let's see what happens. Whereupon, he becomes an astronomer and attached to this project, and then I realized, okay, well, this book is going to be about the discovery of Planet X, which would become Pluto, which meant then I had to figure out what that story was. So I had this kind of whole architecture of character and even event and kind of plot 
to a limited degree before I had Pluto, which is backwards and wrong. So it wasn't as if you thought, oh, there's a story to be told about finding this, because this is the last planet before Pluto was demoted that we found. Yeah, I went the wrong way. No, that actually sounds like the best. That's better. It's, it, it was definitely more organic, but it did take me seven years, right, to get, I mean, p- from the time I picked it up again to the time it, I was done with it, which, and the reason why. It's was, 491 pages, too. It's not like you wrote a slim volume. It's a big book. Um, <laughs> it's seven. It's huge. But it's, um, you know, it's not it's not outlandish, out, outlandishly huge, but it's, no. it's, it's big enough. And it's got a lot of characters and a lot of plots, and they kind of inter- intersect. And one of the difficulties I, I encountered was trying to figure out how to, how to make them go together um, to the extent that they do now. Uh, but making him, him an astronomer and then leading, that leading me into the story of Planet X and this kid, Clyde Tombaugh, from the middle of Kansas, who was, in fact, the kid who found Planet X at the Lowell Observatory... And he was, this, what, 20? He was 24, 24 when he found it. He was 22, I think, when he invited himself or was invited on a provisional basis to come look for this, what was, um, in many ways, an imaginary thing. So Very brassy to get himself there without a college education from he, the, the farmland. Yeah, so he, he, um, he had grown up... Um, and had come to in his teenage years uh, grind uh, mirrors for his own telescopes. And he, he those are beautiful scenes that you write you. too. Um, and those are all very true to life. So all the stuff that's happening there with Clyde is stuff that he's doing. And so, did you research that, yeah, Michael, or so how did you learn to grind the I, mirrors? I found the books that, or the articles that he would have read, essentially, um, or versions of them. You mentioned Popular Mechanics. Was that some of? Yeah. Like he had all those issues. Yeah. The... Uh huh. <laughs> and and um, you know, um, so Clyde Tombaugh is a kid in Kansas in the twenties. He's a son of a tenant farmer, and he wants to be gone. He's trying to go to college um, to study astronomy or engineering or something. Um, but he wants to be off the farm, but there's no money to send him. The In the book, the story um, develops such that he is almost about to go, and then there's a crop failure. There's a storm that comes through and ruins the crop, so he can't go. He writes a letter out of desperation, really, and randomly to Lowell Observatory, the director there, and he writes him back saying, well, why don't you come on out and 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 work with us for a month? Let's see what you got. Um, because he had sent along in his letter sketches of Jupiter that he had made um, after looking through his homemade telescope. Uh, so he obviously had some technical capacity, some technical kind of ability and talent. And certainly and obsession. Had, and certainly had the interest, that's right. Um so that's how it runs in the book, and that's fairly true to life. It's a little simplified, just for novelistic, you know, ease. But um, but that's mostly what happened. Random. I mean, just random that he ends up there. And what he walks into is a situation that's extremely strange. So this is Lowell Observatory, founded by Percival Lowell, Percival of the title Percival Lowell. Um, he had founded this observatory in 1894-5 to hunt for canals on Mars or to study the canals on Mars because he thought they were Martians. Um, so he's rich enough and strange enough and obsessed enough to do this. This is his first, this is Percival Lowell's first interest. His second interest is the idea that there's a ninth planet out there. 
that has gone undiscovered and that's that and that there's some evidence for in the wobbles of the outer planets which are unaccounted for so this observatory has been tied to this very strange very um, particularly well it's a it's a peculiar project uh, for more than a decade now and Lowell is dead his will has been contested by his irascible widow there's no money really to pursue this project um, the will, as as Tombaugh is arriving there, the will has just been settled. The money is coming in again. The machines, the instruments are getting back online. And so he's walking into this long history of obsession and strangeness and looking for a planet that may or may not be there. And the work that has to be done in order to find it is meticulous, painstaking. I mean, by today's standards, it, it looks insane. You take pictures of the sky about a week apart, same part of the sky, a night sky, obviously, <laughs> of the stars, and then you look at them side by side in a machine to see which has moved, if something has moved. And if something has moved, maybe it's a planet that you haven't seen before. Um, but the work here is is incredibly meticulous work, and the work that a kid who makes his own telescopes is going to be very good at as it happens. So Tom Boss spends the rest of 1929 and the beginning of 1930 looking at these pictures that he's developed, looking for something that's that's maybe there, maybe isn't. And he finds it. He finds something in 1930. In February 18th, 1930, he finds an image. The thing is, it doesn't look like what it should because what, they are, what they've been looking for, what Percival Lowell has, has proposed and has imagined is out there is not a little tiny thing like Pluto. It's a big, bigger thing. It's an object like Neptune or at least like Earth. It's some large planet which would be big enough to wobble those outer planets. So when they find it, the weirdest thing is it's right where it should be. It's right where Percival Lowell's math said it was going to be. It's right where all the gravitational influences seem to point. Like a thing that's going to perturb Neptune and Uranus is going to be right there. He looks there. He finds something. There it is. But, but it's too small. It's too small to perturb. They don't know what it is. What is it? Well, it's Pluto. It's Pluto. It's this non-planet planet out there that even then they knew was bogus. They knew. They knew that it was not really a planet. Because it wasn't big enough to make the true wobbles? Is that, the, is that really? Yeah. That, that's it. So when they were looking for Planet X, they were looking for something mathematically. They were looking at a, in a place um, that was determined by the yeah the wiggles of the outer planet when they find it there it's not big enough to produce those wiggles so what is it how can this be what's the explanation this is outlandish coincidence if it's impossible if it doesn't make the perturbations what's the explanation the explanation is those wiggles didn't exist they were faulty observations so they were using slightly faulty um figures to do their math it's a, just a bizarre story, right, full of uh, impossible coincidences. And Clyde, this Kansas farm boy, walks into it and finds this thing and becomes world famous. In 1930, just, you know, six months after the, the Wall Street crash and as the Depression is starting up, and there, there's a feeling in the country of, boy, things are bad. They don't know how bad it's going to be at this point in 1930, but but there's a... There's a there's an element of a, of a kind of American know-how and a pride in that American know-how that, that makes people pay maybe a little more attention to this story than they would have otherwise. So all these kind of historical and mathematical and, and 
impossible <laughs> uh, arcs combine in this event. And Clyde and Clyde is real. And you you use um, with the what part of the character creation then is yours? Like, is it in the framework? Because you begin and end the story in close closer to the present. It's not we're not we don't begin in the past. So there's a prologue and an epilogue, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, set in 1990, when Tombo was, Clyde Tombo was 84, I guess. Um, which, uh, which, right, it's your sort of movie lead in, you know, you see the present day and then bleeds into the past. And then you get back. It's like uh, Saving Private Ryan. You seen that? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> that was your inspiration. Yeah, totally. No. Totally. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. So there's a there's the there's the present bookends the past. But why story. and why and do you, why do that? Why why make that move? Well, um, that move is partly in order to signal that this book, which has a lot of other characters, is actually about Clyde or about the story of Pluto, and it's to sort of reinforce this idea, which is a tenuous idea. Once you, especially after like the fourth chapter, that this book is going to be all about Clyde Tombaugh and Pluto, because as there as I say, there's a number of storylines. And as they accumulate, you begin to wonder, as the reader, what the heck is going? What are all these people doing on the page exactly? How are they going to come together? And so I needed, in some way, to signal that this book was not a collection of random storylines that would eventually cross, but that they were all here for a purpose. And that was a way, anyway, of of doing that. Um, it also allowed me to um, to get an arc. A sort of overarching arc, or to sort of introduce what the overarching arc of the book is going to be. It's going to be Clyde from start to finish, uh, and everybody else is going to have their starts and their finishes. But the start and the finish is going to be Clyde, and therefore it's going to be his book as much as it's anybody else's. And the tension there too, saying no one knows the whole story. Yes, with that sort of being the the promise mm-hmm. then as well. Mm-hmm. Right, I had to give a little hook. Like you're gonna find out something in this book you never knew before, and I actually tried to hew fairly closely to the history in that way. And I I interpret what they were must have been thinking and saying after they found this too small object. So there's there are scenes in the book where I have them having found this thing, trying to figure out what it is or what it could be, and then I have them deciding that they're gonna say or they're they're going to announce that they've found something. Um, and that the world will call it Planet X. They're not going to do that. And I think that's probably how their thinking went. There's no record of that at all. So they're going to announce that they found something, a trans-Neptunian object is what they called it, something beyond Neptune. Um, They call it that. They don't call it Planet X. They don't call it a planet. Um, But the media immediately, literally the next day, begins announcing that a new planet has been found. And so they do the, you know, they sort of... And then of, they back away and let the media take it forward. They do, for a couple days, and then uh, for a few weeks, and then I, I leave it at that. In in the real story, what actually happened was there was then an immediate sort of accounting of what happened, like, how could this be? And there was more discussion. For my purposes, I don't know, that's... that's that's past the end of the book. And did you, when you were writing that part out, I don't know if it's even possible to remember at, at this point, um, Michael, but was it that you felt like you, somehow you felt at that moment that you were in the room with them, that you had this very real sense where it felt like this genuine 
like the dialogue that was coming to you then, the voices. Do, do you know, do, uh, does do. that make sense? Yep. <laughs> well, by the, there's, there's, um, there's uh, writing a novel. There's a lot of, mom- I feel like there's momentum involved, um, an almost literal momentum. You can feel it anyway. It's not obviously physical in any way. But you get through the first 75% of, of, of a book in some way, and it's all pushing. And then the book begins to roll, and then you're following it, right? That's about, or 78, 82%, somewhere in there. We don't have it's to. It's way have... down the line. There's a lot of pushing before it gets to roll. But at that point, it began to roll. And and it's because you're right. I mean, that's exactly it. You you know who these people are. You can hear them, see them. You know what they're worried about and what they might be thinking. You can always write the scene, right? You can't. It doesn't. There's no impediment to the writing exactly uh, at any point. But the the nice thing that happens is that you begin to be able to hear it and see it before you're writing it, right? It happens in front of you rather than through you or something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. And and let's, can we hear a, a, a part of it when we come back, Michael? We'll take this short break. Um, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. You've got living writers today on the program. Michael Byers, his latest novel, Percival's Planet. We'll be back. Writers uh, here, Michael Byers, um, inspiring the greatest American hero. Now uh, that was a good show. Uh, yeah, William how long Cat, did that? How long did that run? Um, was in when was seven? How, how seven? long did that run? It runs forever. <laughs> T in our hearts. It runs forever. Uh, and um, uh, uh, Robert Culp playing Bill Maxwell, FBI agent Bill Maxwell. Mm-hmm. Connie Salica playing Pam. <laughs> Who is the guy that had the curly hair? That's William Cat. Oh, second. Yeah. Now, <laughs> you don't 
you don't remember. Okay. I remember. The, I remember the the the, the red suit. The red suit. So the the conceit of this show for you young ones out there is that he's been given a suit of power by aliens, but he's lost the instruction manual. So he doesn't know how to fly. So he's always being thrown into walls and crashing into bushes, and he's disappearing accidentally and reappearing and turning small and turning large, and he can't control it. It's kind of great, and it makes you feel... I mean, I identified with him, right? It's, when you're uh, growing, too, right? Absolutely. You, know, what you, you don't doing? know what your powers are or who you are. <laughs> you disappear. You reappear at random. You look different. It's very strange, right? It's it, it's kind of brilliant. Did you have a cape? Um, All joking aside, I know we said you had one in the grocery no, had, store, but <laughs> I never had a cape. Never had a cape. It's not um, too late. You can get you can get these. Sh- I do have the shirt now, the shirt with the logo. I'm not wearing it right now, as you can see. <laughs> it could be an undershirt. It could, we it can't is, we can't uh, prove uh, that. <laughs> and you're not gonna look. Um, <laughs> That's right, audience. So and and his name in the in the. Um, uh, the show is Mr. H, and he's a school teacher, and his students call him, hey, Mr. H. But the reason that his name is Mr. H is because in the first season, 1980-81, you know what his name was? Ralph Hinckley, <gasps> as in John Hinckley Jr. Oh, no. So they had oh, to no. change his name, but they couldn't change his name because his name was already Hinckley, so they they never called him Hinckley anymore. They called him H, Mr. H. Isn't that awesome? So you go and go on YouTube, everybody, right now. Go on. It's y o u t u b e dot c com dot com YouTube, and you look up these early episodes, <laughs> any episode of this show, The Greatest American Hero, and it suffers from that thing that happened to shows from the early '80s, which is that it's from such a different era. Not only is everybody skinny, which is kind of cute, but it's so slow. Oh, it's just so slow. You notice that a scene that would take eight seconds in today's television um, uh, uh, dialect or language. Now, it, it, it back then it took, took them two and a half minutes to get out of a room. It's just so slow. It's cute. And you just think, wow, I thought that was good. I thought that was really exciting and fast. My brain has changed. My brain has changed. Television. It's not what it used to be. It's changed your brain. Yeah. Hey, before, right before, because I'd love if we could hear some of Percival's planet, uh, Michael. Um, but right before, uh, just a quick word, an announcement tomorrow. Our wolf, who's been um, here at the station, who's like a, like this, a CBN pillar, basically. I don't know what we'd do without him. Um, he's do, giving a lecture, lecture number one, Beyond the War Model, um, celebrating 30 years of Face the Music. And that's that's tomorrow night, Thursday at 7 o'clock at the, at the Art Museum. So um, why avant-garde is an inadequate and inappropriate term for art and artists. So come join us, join our wolf, um, celebrating 30 years of Face the Music. Um, it seems appropriate, too, because the music has been so well chosen crucial. for this this particular show with Michael Byers today. <laughs> Truly crucial. So so will you so you're reading from towards the the back of the the book here. So this is just um we were just speaking of this. So this is just um after they have found something and they're trying to figure out what it is. They're in the observatory. It's late. It's the night of February 18th, 1930 and they have found an image which is retrograding meaning it's going around the sun. Um, It's orbiting the sun, and they don't know what it is. And Alan Barber, who is this imaginary mathematician who I have partnered with Clyde Tombaugh, is trying to figure out what he's seeing. 
Um, so, AKA your grandfather. Yeah. Well, sort of the guy who started as my grandfather and became this other character, Alan Barber. Um, Tomba is down under uh, in the basement and he's looking at plates right now. Alan Barber is upstairs in the library doing math. And Vesto Slifer, who is the director of the observatory, is kind of hovering around. Um, <clears throat> ten minutes after midnight, soon after a light snow begins falling, he has it figured. By his numbers, this object has barely a tenth of the mass of Earth, just 0.106 of Earth, give or take, which means it is smaller even than Mars, smaller than any of the other planets by a long measure, and nothing like Neptune, whose mass is equal to about 17 Earths. Too small, all right. He takes his papers to Slifer's office. I don't know, sir, he begins. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, that would be about par for the course. Slifer is bright-eyed and chewing his pipe. I'm sure Constance and her people will be delighted to hear that. It looks like it's got a period of about 241 years, about 38 astronomical units out, a rough eccentricity of 2.3, tipped way off the ecliptic, although fortunately not for us at the moment, maybe out to 14 degrees off. Boy, oh. It's an oddball, sir. Now, this is all just sketching, right? But with that eccentricity at that distance, it actually goes inside Neptune's orbit. It goes in and out. It'll cross over to be inside Neptune's orbit in 52 years or so. Then it passes back out again a few years later. Slifer grunts. He'd perturb like hell. If he's big enough, he would. Alan swallows, but I get a mass of 0.106. You do, do you? From what I have so far, anyway. Slifer says, well, that would be one reason he's so faint, wouldn't it? Unless I'm wrong, this is something like a cometary core or an errant moon or something captured somewhere along the way and slung into this oddball orbit. My guess, my best guess is, it's a very large captured comet, sir, he finishes, and not a planet at all. Not a planet. At least not as we think of planets, sir. Slifer turns his pipe. No, but that's very odd, isn't it? Because you both put it right about there. In fact, Percy was closer, wasn't he? A little. But you both had him right there, didn't you, with a Neptunian mass? Yes, he sighs, and that's the part that doesn't make sense. Slifer's Jesuitical gaze goes deep as he stares at the wall, snow taps softly at the window. Well, Slifer sets his pipe aside. Our friend Shapley sent us a wire, and that's the guy who's running the Harvard College Observatory. Our friend Shapley sent us a wire. He hands it across. It reads only, confirm Shapley. It would be nice to show him anyway, and Flory too, for what that's worth. Constance, certainly. Thank you. So they're 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 deciding to call it a planet, or to advertise it as such. Whereas I think they probably knew it wasn't. And and hence begins the the lies that are another lie told to us as children. Indeed. Now, <laughs> now I, I, I had a great deal to do with the folks out at Lowell Observatory during the writing and the researching of this book and then, um, and then uh, the publishing as well. And I was worried at first that they would take issue with my version of events. And, um, and they didn't. I mean, I don't think they endorsed them exactly. So what do you mean? Like, what happens then, Michael? You go, you went out there mm -hmm. and you did research. You were sort of in the field with them and, and they also, and, and then you, did you read them any of the, what you wrote or do you send them parts of it to say, is this? No, I didn't. Cause um, you, yeah, that I would think would be a dangerous road to go down, like sending a part yeah, of it's, the. Yeah, it's their story, but it's not just their story. So everybody can write it. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, but, uh, but I'm out there and, uh, 
learning about the place and seeing the place and and using the instruments that these astronomers used and and getting to look through them and and better than that getting to go down in the archives and poke around and really feel the look at the journals that Clyde Tombaugh kept and to see how meticulous he was. Yeah, what was that? Can well, you tell look us. At, yes, you, so this search for this planet went on for decades and Tombaugh was only the last person to to take it up. They started in about 1905 with instruments that were much too weak to have ever resolved this small fig, um, uh, image. And this was Percival Lowell. So Percival Lowell with his crew. Lowell dies in 1916. Twelve years later, Tomba comes or shows up just about. Anyway, um, so you look at the journals, the sort of observation logs of the guys who did it before Tomba, and they are all over the place. They're messy. They're kind of errant. Every couple, literally every couple of pages, there's something that's that's an entry that says possible planet, question mark, and nobody, are, you know, they, they can't go back and confirm. They don't have the instruments. Mm. Also, the character of the people who were undertaking this, this work was different than Tomba. Tomba was obsessed and obsessive and meticulous and very afraid of losing his job. And he was an outsider. And he could easily be fired and sent back to Kansas. He'd only been to high school. Will you, will right? you open with the, the novel with showing um, Barber and then also, um, uh, the Dick, was it Dick Morrow? Mm-hmm. Um, where, and they've actually been, there. it's their shift, but they've been drinking a bit on the way. So maybe, is that what you mean by maybe the observations weren't, meticulous like Tom Bell. Well, right. I mean, most of the people who were involved in this project thought, I think, it was a crackpot crackpot idea. (laughs) Lowell was famous for them. I mean, Lowell was kind of a figure of ridicule, Percival Lowell, um, for a long time because he was most well-known for popularizing and kind of pursuing this idea of a Martian civilization, the canals on Mars. So he he was thought of as kind of a crackpot and so were his projects. So... There could have been a Venice, a Mars yeah, Venice. Yeah, could have been. <laughs> it's very dry. It's very dry up there. Very dry. Uh, so uh, you can imagine being saddled with this project. Hey, Henry, go take pictures of Planet X. I'm like, oh, boy, that one, I got that shift. What did I do wrong? Right? So you're not going to take it terribly seriously, and for good reason. Tomba, however... He was in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. And more than that, he was the right guy. He had the right personality to do this insane work. So getting down there in the archives and looking at his, um, literally his handwriting, and to see how meticulous he was with his work and to see how careful he was with his observational logs, in contrast to the people who've come before, um, allowed me really to see, ah, well, that's... I put two and two together there when I held that book in my hands. Like, oh, that kid in the farmyard grinding his mirror is the kid who's going to find Pluto. He's the only kid who can do it. He's the only that you have to be like that in order to find that thing. Um, and I, I hadn't put that together um, before going there. Um, but I were, you know, I, I had I had a little kind of nagging concern in the back of my head that they would be un- displeased with my idea of. Well, they kind of knew that Pluto was bogus from the get-go, um, but they didn't. They didn't. In fact, they kind of, I, I think, to the extent that they endorse it, they, they, they don't mind anyway. That that's a version of the story, and they're selling it in the gift shop. So <laughs> that's, that's all an author can ask for. So they can't be that. I'm right there on the counter. Right there on the counter. The impulse buy. That's right. Oh, a novel. 
I'll buy that and the t-shirt, the glow in the dark t-shirt. Yeah. I think it's a great, it's, it's in the holidays upon us. Oh, it's you a, can even probably mail order these. It's a fabulous <laughs> gift item. Um, you can get it deeply discounted online now. I am well, for positive. the holidays. For the holidays. Yes. A, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, let's let people take a moment and look into that. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. This will be a short one. We won't be gone too long enjoying our musical interlude, but you've got today on Living Writers, Michael Byers, his novel, Percival's Planet. Uh, we'll be right back. Oh, you know what? Here we are. So, Percival's Planet. We're back. <laughs> We're back. You know what? You're just going to have to take that moment on your own to look up <laughs> Percival's Double Planet. HTTP <laughs> colon backslash backslash. Exactly. Well, so so you've been telling us kindly about what I can only imagine must be really thrilling to do some of the archival work and to, to be as near to someone as you can because you didn't get a chance to meet him because he obviously by the time you started this project he, Clyde had died mm-hmm. um, I don't know why I always bring up the grim things but anyway you t- oh, like you just narrowly miss him right yep. in some ways like knowing this person that you've written this novel mm-hmm. for or about and it's um, it is strange to write a novel about people who lived um, and there's a responsibility there that I did feel in a way that I didn't exactly feel it from my previous book, which although, you know, using certain family members as a model was very fictional. Uh, this one is, purports anyway, to be, to take part in some kind of history. I mean, it's it's very much a novel. Um, however, it is based in its structure very much on the guy himself and on Tombaugh and on other real life figures who really did live and who are around. So was um, that a constraint or was that something that you felt I had to get used put you to somewhere it. new? Yeah, I think that's it. I think I I just kind of had to get get used to the idea. Um I had to write it. I found ha- I found writing in present tense helped. Um I had written it all in in past tense, which was what my previous book was, and it was dead dead dead. And um one of the reasons that I sp- proposed that that was feeling that way was because I I was always looking up sort of ahead. I would know what had happened to them already. It was a a historical novel, happened to real people and I knew the ending. And so there there was little life in the the prose. Um, But if and when I put it down in the present tense, it it forced my eye into the moment. And so by forcing my eye into the moment, I got to, I knew things about the, I, I had to follow things about the characters. I didn't ha- I didn't find myself having to follow in the past. So I, I had to kind of wear, you know, weave a new suit, a new prose suit <laughs> to wear in which to write this book. And, you know, and then there's kind of the, 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 the material from the era and the slang and, and all that stuff as well. So that, that was also research and yeah how did you that because you're kind of you're you're gesturing as it as if it's a toss-off but well, that's actually if you don't have that then it feels a false little, a little goes a long way and there are things in there that i put in because i like that i know will never get that sounds unlike you well yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that i need i wanted to have them in there and i recognize that nobody else would ever 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 know what they were in reference to. Can but I know. What's an example? 
Well, um, late in the book, there's a there's a, a dinosaur hunter character here, who's in the book as well. By the way, there's a dinosaur major major plot line, dinosaur hunter, um, and he's talking with his his kind of foreman, and the 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 crash has happened, and there and and this guy, this dinosaur hunter who has been rich, is now broke. Spoiler alert. And um, they uh, he and his foreman are talking, and. He says, are you really broke? The foreman says, yes. And then the guy says, busted as Ben Doney. And says, oh, busted as Ben Doney. Well, oh, that's really busted. Who is Ben Doney? Who? who is, nobody knows who Ben Doney is because I'm the only living person who knows who Ben Doney is. Until now. <laughs> ben Doney was this guy who was a prospector around in the Arizona area who was famous for his kind of scheme for getting money for prospecting. And he would borrow $60 at the beginning of a month, use it to stake a claim, and then after staking that claim and hunting, you know, seeing if there was anything in Territory X, would then go back to the bank, borrow another $60, pay his earlier $60 off with that money, and then stake. And so he just he had no money at all, and he, walked, he went around in this wagon in the hills. And, and you came across this because yeah. you were there. No, I and, was or, I was doing research you... in a library. I was reading old, old, old uh, like um, archaeological accounts of the of the place. And he was a he was a he was a he was a mention. He, he had a a three line toss off mention in some scholarly article from 1928. Like okay, that goes in the notes, and there it is in the book. And I'm the only like I knew that I would. That's just me. I just wanted them to say that because I like that. So that's, you know, there are, there. I have to say, there are great pleasures in writing something that really happened. There's something to fall back on. You also do run into people, right? So I was giving a reading in Seattle and... and this was at Elliott Bay. This was company. the launch of the book and... Um, Your hometown. My hometown. Of the 52 people who are there, 51 are family members and the fifties. You're too much. And the fifties. No, I'm. I'm not. You have a large family <laughs> that to. crowded out the rest. That's then. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, the fifty-second raised her hand afterward. I didn't recognize this person, <laughs> which was unusual, <laughs> and uh, and said, "I am Vesto Slifer's granddaughter. I'm the daughter, granddaughter of the director of the observatory." And one of the real people in your novel. One of the real people. And there she is. It was just, it's eerie and uncanny. There she is. She's right there. And so this guy, Vesto Slifer, was known for his kind of reticence and his shyness for, and his um, reluctance to publish. And this person, very shy. Yes. Very reluctant to talk. Uh, and I thought, well, I, I kind of got that, yeah. got that right. That's almost like, that's like something auspicious, like some sign, like some nod that you're, I mean, if there's some sort of river of words running through the universe. There she is. She caught it and she's swimming down it. Yeah, it was, it was kind of great. Um, and there have been a few other kind of, uh, nothing as dramatic. Yeah. As anything else? Yeah. That is, I mean, um, well, you know, I've, I've had, uh, I've, I've. I've since since the book has come out, I've met people who have known Tombaugh, um, and there's you know I changed I changed some of Tombaugh's family conditions. Did you not try to 
meet any of the family, like for part of the research or? Uh... Mm, no, I, I didn't. No, I didn't. Uh, again, it's that sort of thing where you want to know enough, but not too much. Yeah. And so, and I needed him to be a character in a novel rather than a person in a biography. A historical figure marching yeah. through time. So I satisfied myself with what I knew, but I've since known people who have known him. Um, and I, I changed his relationship primarily with his father, Tomba's father. I make that a more adversarial relationship just to give him something to give him some kind of narrative and characterological traction in the beginning and at the end, somebody to fight against and get out of Kansas and really want to get out of there. That really wasn't the case. Uh, and there have been some people who've, you know, thought, well, that was wrong. And it was wrong, but it was what I wanted to do. And I knew it was wrong. However, I wanted slash needed, felt I needed to, to do it. So I did. And these, these, this is why it's a novel. These are your choices, this Michael is, Byers. This is a novel. This, this is your life. It was. Now and, it's done. Now it's done. Now it's done. I don't have to think about it very much anymore, which is great. Which Just is, sometimes talk about it. Uh, which I love to do because talking does not equal thinking. <laughs> and <when it's, laughs> As you can tell. As as an example today, as we so See above. nicely shown. Thank you so much for being here today, Michael Byers. T, anytime. When do we get to do this again? Well, we're going to write it in the calendar right, right after we go off the air. Thanks for being here.